turn over into the New Testament and towards the end of the New Testament to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verses 17 through 21. Peter writes, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, I pray now that you would so speak to us that our faith and hope would be in you and in your Son, and in his precious blood. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On this Communion Sunday, I'd like particularly to focus your attention on just two of those verses that we read, namely verses 18 and 19. Peter wants God's people to fear the Lord, verse 17, to honor him, to reverence him, like a child with his or her father. But one of the great reasons why you should fear the Lord, he says, why you should walk in reverence and obedience is knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Fear the Lord because you have been redeemed. Redeemed. There was a woman in the Old Testament who could have defined that word quite well for us were she here this morning to tell her story. Because even though she'd had a sordid history, a history of ill repute, in fact, God had looked on her with mercy And in his purposes, she found herself loved by and given a proposal of marriage from a man of God, from an Old Testament preacher, no less. He came and took her off of the streets and brought her into his home and married her and provided for her and loved her. And she gave him three children, two boys and a little girl. And you might have thought that this blossoming young family would then have lived happily ever after. Somewhere along the line, the lure of the street corners and the brothels begin to tug at this woman's heart once again. And this mother of three left her children, left her preacher, husband, left the life that God had given her, and went back to the red light district once again. And she ended up actually as the property of some street hustler, a slave of her own sins and to another human being. But then one day, she's there in that part of town, and she sees him, the preacher man, making his way down the street with his eyes squinted, looking at the houses and the different doors, trying to decide where to knock first. And his wife is standing there on the corner, maybe staring out 
luridly through a window at all the men who are passing by, and one of the men is her own husband, the father of her children. What's he doing here in this part of town? And he's got a big bag over his shoulder and a little leather pouch hanging at his belt. What is he doing here of all places? And she sees him knocking on the door where she lives and entering in with his little bag of coins. And he disappears inside for several minutes. And then he finally comes out and the money pouch is gone. And he's carrying a different bag over his shoulders. looks like a laundry bag. And her boss, her owner, is with him. And they're walking straight towards her. And that hustler looks over her one last time with leering eyes. And he grabs her by the upper arm and pulls her over and hands her to her husband and says, Meet your new owner. I've just sold you for a sack of barley and 15 pieces of silver. And as the man walks back to his trade, she looks up into the eyes of her husband. And you can imagine her beginning to convulse and to weep, and he looks at her, and he loves her still, and he says to her, redeemed. You have been redeemed, Gomer. That man no longer owes you. I have purchased your freedom. I have opened my pouch and poured out the silver onto the table, and you are free. Come home with me, Gomer. Stay with me this time. Let me be your one and only. You don't have to go down here anymore. You have been redeemed. That's the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, told, of course, with some of my own imagination mixed in. And that's the word that Peter uses here to describe us in 1 Peter 1.18, redeemed. It's a word from the market, from the slave market, a word that signifies someone being bought back out of slavery, redeemed. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? It's beautiful when we think about Hosea down on McMicken Street, as it were, buying his wife back from her master. Or when we picture a different situation where people were enslaved against their wills in the 1800s in our own country. And we we see some great soul pushing his way to the front of the slave market and plunking down a pocket full of cash in order to outbid all the greedy traders. And then taking that young African man whom he has just purchased and walking with him out of the city and releasing him from his irons and granting him a writ of freedom and saying, you're redeemed. You are free, no longer a slave. And that is what Peter says has been done for us. God sent his only begotten son into the red light district of this planet. The last place you might expect him to be, he sent him into the slave markets of this world, the place where men and women for these six millennia have been enslaved and degraded by all sorts of other masters to all sorts of sinful pleasures, and like Gomer, have actually sold themselves into this predicament, and God sent his son into that place to seek out those prodigal men and women and to buy them back out of their slavery to sin, to redeem them. That is what it means to be redeemed, to be purchased out of your slavery and to be set at liberty. But when Peter says that we've been redeemed here, 
it forces us to admit that we have been previously enslaved, right? You cannot be redeemed if you've not been enslaved, and we have been. Enslaved to what? Well, he says in verse 18, to a futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. A futile way of life. Did it ever occur to you that apart from Christ, your way of life was futile? That apart from Christ, your life was actually just being wasted away? Now, you may have done some nice things. You may have done a good turn to some certain people. You may have made a profit in business, had some positive impact on your children, enjoyed much of what life has to offer, many of the gifts that God has given us by his common grace. But the most valuable commodity God has given you is your soul. And your soul, apart from Christ, was trapped in futility. Your soul was made to enjoy the Lord and to glorify him forever. And apart from Christ, you couldn't do that. Apart from Christ, you weren't praising him or living for his service, nor even really awake to him. Apart from Christ, the most valuable commodity God has given each one of us was at best lying dormant within you and at worst was being sold like Gomer's body to other masters, masters who rightfully had no claim over it. Some of you can remember this quite well, how dirty you felt on the inside when you first became aware of your need for Jesus. You were realizing that you had sold your soul like a harlot sells her body to so many other masters. Or others of you, when you came to Christ, may have just felt this intense sense of waste. I've spent so many years of my life on what? Nothing that matters for eternity. And so Peter says it is a futile way of life to live without Jesus. And some of us may still be living it this morning. All these years we've lived and still have very little, if anything, to show for it spiritually. Your futile way of life, Peter calls it, inherited from your forefathers. Inherited from your forefathers. Now what does that mean? Is all our sin and our futility actually our parents' fault? Is Peter giving us an excuse here? Well, I can't help it. My parents made me this way. No, that's not what Peter's doing. But what he is saying is that the futility with which people live their lives did not start just in their own generation. The futility that you may see in people around you or even in your own life did not begin just with you. And it didn't begin in the generation who first read Peter's letter either. These Christians to whom Peter first wrote had simply been living in the same way that their ancestors before them had lived and their ancestors before that. And it was a futile way of living. Sin is passed down from generation to generation, isn't it? And it's passed down that way both by nurture and by nature. We all sin in certain ways, sadly, because that's how we saw our parents behaving or whoever it was that raised us. Isn't that true? I'm starting to see my own ugly reflection sometimes coming out in the habits of my family. 
Even as a Christian dad, I'm passing down certain sinful habits that are foul and that are futile. And chances are all of you who have children have seen the same sad pattern in your own households. And that was the case with these Christians who first received this letter from the Apostle Peter. They had come to Jesus, it would seem, with all sorts of family baggage draped over their hunched backs, with all sorts of sinful habits ingrained into their characters, learned from generations of sin repeated one after the other in their families. That's not an excuse for people to continue sinning, but it is an explanation for why certain people sin in the particular ways that they do. Isn't that right? You learn things from your family, and that doesn't make it an excuse that you do it, but it explains why you sin in that way, maybe versus another. We're all sinners by nature, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But the particular ways in which we all sin are often heavily influenced by the futile ways that we learn from watching our families. That's sobering if you're a parent or a grandparent or someday hope to be. But we don't just become sinful from watching our parents, do we? We're actually born sinful to our parents. They don't have a very good lump of clay to work with, in other words. We are sinful, King David wrote, even at conception. We inherit futility and crookedness and depravity in the very essence of our beings. And this also from our forefathers, not just our immediate parents and grandparents, but based on our blood relation to the fallen human race in general. It is a futile way of life that we have inherited from our forefathers in the human race. Ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit, ever since they broke God's law in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been mired in a curse of futility. We are born crooked. We are born sinful. We are conceived as sinners. In other words, we don't become sinners once we come out of our mother's womb and begin to sin. We come out of our mother's womb and begin to sin because we are already sinners at conception. I want to say that again. We don't become sinners once we come out of our mother's womb and begin sinning. We come out of our mother's womb and begin sinning because we were already sinners in the womb, conceived that way. So talk about a futile way of life. Inherited from your forefathers. Romans 5.19 puts it like this. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through one man's disobedience, namely the disobedience of Adam in the garden, the many were made sinners. By nature, we are sinners. That explains a lot, doesn't it? It explains why though you teach your children a lot of ways that they end up sinning as they grow older, you don't have to teach them to sin from the very beginning, do you? You didn't have to teach your children to lie when they're in trouble. They seem to just figure that out on their own, don't they? Same thing with screaming and rolling on the floor when they don't get their way. Hopefully they don't do that because they see their parents doing it, right? They just do it. The same thing with taking things from other children. You don't have to teach your kids to do that, do you? They just do it. You put them in the nursery, and they take something from another child. Now, they, 
They may do these things more than other children in some cases and less than other children, even within one household. But all of them sin, right? They all sin very quickly after they're born. They all sin in ways that they did not learn from watching mom and dad or from the bad examples on television. Which puts the lie to the idea that sin and overcoming sin is solely about nurture and education and making better choices. Those are factors. Nurture often plays a part, as I said, in the specific ways that we learn to habitually sin. But we're all sinners also by nature. We will find a way to do it. Sin and futile living, both as we inherit it by nature and as it is channeled by nurture, is a way of life, Peter says in verse 18. It's not just a matter of a few bad choices here and there. This futility that Peter is talking about is a way of life. And that means that it will not change simply with some education and some habit-forming exercises and a little bit of therapy and positive influence. We're enslaved, remember, to sinful, futile passions and desires. We're enslaved. That's why the world is in such a mess today. And maybe why some of us can't seem to get over the hump and get any better either. And it's why, in spite of all the education that we have and all the medication and all the progress and all the opportunity that it is afforded to modern man like no other generation before, modern man is still as much of a spiritual train wreck as ever our forefathers were before us. Because we're enslaved, not just taught wrongly, not just influenced badly, we're enslaved to a sinful nature. Not simply misinformed, not simply mixed up in some poor habits, enslaved, like Gomer of old, to a futile way of life. And the only hope for an enslaved person is that someone like Hosea will come along and redeem them. That someone will come along and buy them back out of slavery. That someone will come along and plunk down the price to set them free. And praise God, that is exactly what Peter says that Jesus has done. You have been redeemed. And those of you who know Christ understand exactly what that's like. He brought you out of the ugliness and the futility that you were living in and made something beautiful out of your life. Not perfect yet, but altogether different from the road that you were on. You now have forgiveness and purpose and relationships and habits, and desires, and dreams, and opportunities to minister to others that you never would have dreamed you could have had when you were mired in your futile way of life. For many of you, you didn't even know that such a different way of life existed, and you may be surprised at what it's actually turned out to be, because you didn't realize at one point that you were enslaved. Your futility, your enslavement was all you'd ever known, right? But now you know differently. Now you know what it is to be free, to be loved, to be redeemed, to be bought with a price. You know that so-called generational curses and sin habits that everyone in your family has been enslaved by before you no longer control your life. Because you have been bought with a price. You have been bought out of your enslavement to those things. You have been redeemed from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. You're not a slave to that any longer. And you know that it was Jesus who went into the slum streets of this world to plunk down the redemption price. 
and remember what Peter says. He did not buy you back the same way that Hosea bought Gomer. Jesus did not merely pay for your redemption with a sack of grain and a bag of silver. No. What does the verse say? You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers. No. The kind of slavery in which you and I found ourselves required a payment much more costly, much more precious than that. Much more precious than silver or gold. Not because of the value of the slave who is being bought back, but because of the nature of the slavery. If we had simply been enslaved to a mere man, well, then like Gomer or the African slaves of old, our freedom might have been bought with a bag of silver. And that would have been a great deliverance, wouldn't it? If God did that for us. But our enslavement is much more serious than that. Because our enslavement was actually to sin itself. And sin not only enslaves us, but it offends and incurs the wrath of God. And because of that, in order for us to be broken free from it, in order for us to be brought out of its grip, God's wrath against us must be dealt with. God's anger against our sin must be appeased if we are to be set free. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the result of that wrath, the wages of that sin, is death. Our enslavement to sin, our futile way of life, our living apart from God and breaking His laws means that we deserve death. And so the redemption price, the price of deliverance from our enslavement, cannot simply be silver or gold. It must be the price of death. That's what we owe. Blood must be shed in order for us to be redeemed. And it was, wasn't it? You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. A lamb, unblemished and spotless. In the Old Testament, that is what was required to make atonement for sin. The blood of a spotless lamb or other animal, a lamb without defect, not blind, not lame, not sick, not wounded, not malformed, not blemished in any way. When a person sinned, he must bring a perfect animal, sometimes a lamb, sometimes another species, and that animal's blood must be spilled, poured out to make atonement for the sin of the person or persons who bring it, because the wages of sin is death. And if someone or some animal is going to pay God the debt that your sins have incurred, they must pay the full price. They must pay the penalty that you deserve. And because you and I deserve death for our sins, if that lamb is to stand in our place and receive our punishment for us, then it must pay with its own life's blood. And so blood is required to make atonement for sin. Blood is required to appease God's wrath and to absorb the just penalty that is deserved because of our sin. And that's what Christ came to do and be, isn't it? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
The blood of Christ, that is what appeases God's wrath. That is what absorbs the penalty for our sins, as we've just been saying. But Peter tells us that this same blood which sets us free from the penalty of sin also sets us free from the power of sin. That's what the word redemption is about. The blood of Christ has redeemed us. It has set us free from our enslavement to futility and sin. It has paid the redemption price so that we don't have to go on living after the way of our forefathers, after the way of mankind. The blood of Jesus pays the atonement price so that we don't live under the penalty of sin, but it also pays the redemption price so that we're no longer enslaved by the power of sin. Jesus shed his precious blood, and because he did, we do not have to be trapped in those sin patterns that have haunted our families and our human race for generations. We are free. Christ has walked into the back streets of this world, and he has sought us out, and he has found us, and he has opened not a money pouch, but his own veins, and poured out the price of our freedom. Not silver or gold, but his own precious blood. His blood is precious, isn't it? Primarily because of whose blood it is. The Word who was with God and who was God and through whom all things came into being. This is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us and opened his veins to set us free. The eternal Son of God who is the image of the invisible God and who upholds all things by the word of his power and who will come to have first place in everything. His blood was poured out to be a ransom for many. The baby who was born in Bethlehem and who kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men and was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, he is the one who shed his blood, Jesus of Nazareth. The one whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power and who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The one who befriended tax collectors and sinners. The one who touched lepers and made them well. The one who brought young mothers with their children so that they might lay his hands on them and that he might lay his hands on them and pray. This is the one who shed his blood. If it's his blood, this Jesus then it's precious blood indeed, isn't it? No matter what that blood may or may not have accomplished. The blood with which we have been redeemed is precious blood simply because it is the blood of Christ. But it's also precious because it's redeemed us. Don't you think that Hosea's wife, when she saw her husband pulling out that leather money pouch for the rest of her days, do you think she ever quite saw that little bag of silver the same way again? Don't you think that sometimes at least when she saw him getting out his pouch and pulling the coins out of it, that she couldn't help but remember those 15 coins that he had poured out onto the brothel table that day? Those pieces of silver, though she never saw them again, must have been precious to her. And when she saw other pieces of silver, surely sometimes she hearkened back and remembered that she had been bought with a price. And how much more for us when we remember the blood of Christ. We don't see it either. But every time we see the reminders of it sitting on the communion table, 
We ought to think back like Gomer and marvel again at what our bridegroom was willing to pay in order to bring us home. The blood of Christ is precious, I say, first and foremost because of whose blood it is, but also it is precious to us because of what it accomplished. Jesus' blood, Peter says, is the price of our redemption. It is the cost of our freedom from sin's power. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Jesus' blood, as we've said, is also the cost of our freedom from sin's penalty, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, Romans 3, 25. Jesus' blood is the guarantee that we are right with God. We are, Paul says, Romans 5, 9, justified by his blood. Jesus' blood is our nearness to God. Ephesians 2.13, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood is our peace. He has, Colossians 1.20, made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus' blood is what cleanses our consciences. Hebrews 9.13 and 14, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' blood is our confidence to approach the throne of God Hebrews 10:19 We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood is the hope of the nations. Revelation 5:9 And they sang a new song saying, "Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And in all these ways Jesus' blood is the seal of the new covenant. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. No wonder the hymn writer, Robert Lowry, could write, This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No wonder Peter called it precious blood. And no wonder Jesus taught us through the cup of the Lord's Supper to perpetually remember that it was poured out for us. Remember it with me now, with great joy and thanksgiving, with reverent fear toward our God, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood uh, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ.